0: Good morning, everyone. Pastor Steve, thank you for the introduction. And I am wondering if you, you were to take me to the high school that you graduated from, where on campus would you drag me and say something very significant happened at this specific location? Some of us in here would have to work a little bit to remember back that far, including me. And, you know, if I was going to take you to my high school, I grew up in Southern California, in Orange County, California, which, as the message goes on, may explain a lot. But uh, I would take you to Catella High School, where I played basketball and uh, had a great experience in Orange County. And there would be a number of places on the campus that I would say, this happened here, this happened here. But ultimately, the last place that we would go would be to the gymnasium in the back of the school for a couple of reasons. One is that I played basketball in a lot of pain and sweat and... Tears were shed in that gymnasium. But more significantly, at 10.30 in the morning when I was a sophomore at that school, Catella being in Southern California, being an open campus, all of us heard a motorcycle rev. And a junior kid on our campus took his motorcycle 65 miles an hour into this gym wall and killed himself that morning. He did it to get his girlfriend's attention, and I, who had broken up with him the day before. And I walk around the campus and I eventually find myself at this wall and I slide my fingers down those bricks and I put my fingers into the indentations where his fork marks are still there. And I reflect on this. This is the mark that this kid left on the planet. And I ponder what kind of mark do I want to leave. And I find that at certain times in my life, I try to step aside and I try to reflect, okay, is how I'm investing myself Is the way that I'm talking to people, is is how I'm spending my time going to result when it's all said and done with the kind of life that I want to live and the kind of mark that I want to make? And so this morning what I want you to do along with me, if I could we'd all get in a jet and we'd go to Southern California and we'd go to Catella High School and I'd have each one of you put your fingers in that wall. But maybe in our minds this morning we can begin by me inviting you to this wall and in your own mind and your own spirit I want you to slide your fingers down and put your fingers in that indent and ask yourself this morning what kind of mark am i leaving on the planet we talk a lot about carbon footprint and well we should because we want our grandchildren's to have a healthy earth we think god want we know that god wants us to steward the world well we don't talk nearly as much as we should about relational footprint because each one of us leaves a relational wake a while back i was at a conference and a guy who is 6'10" i'm 6'4" so i spend very little of my life doing this he comes up to me and i look up at him And he said, I'd like to say something to you. And I said to him, you're 6'10". You can say whatever you want. (laughs) And He he said, "Uh, I grew up in a home, and my dad was a good drunk. And I had never heard that phrase before. What does he mean by a good drunk? I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, my father would drink, but he could still function as a human being. So he would coach my Little League team. I'm 10 years old, and my father was a great athlete, and he would get exasperated at me, little Donnie, because whenever I would stand in the batter's box, and whenever a pitch would come anywhere close to me, I would step out. I was 10 years old. I was afraid of getting hit by the ball. And my father would scream at me, and he'd say, Donnie, stand in there. Come on, stand in there. You can hit the ball. But I was 10. He said, one day, my father got so frustrated with me that he takes me to the Little League field, he gets the fastest pitcher in our Little League, gives him a bucket of balls, stands him on the mound, and he grabs me by the back of my belt as I stand in the batter's box so I cannot step out, and he holds me in there until he feels that I've hit enough balls out of the infield. He said, by the time that that time comes, the left side of my body is covered with bumps, and I've been hit in the face twice by fastballs. He said, "Dan, I'm 58 years old today." When I was 12, 2 years later, my father heard me crying. I was in middle school, my life wasn't working, and he burst into my room in a drunken rage with the bloodshot eyes and he leans into me and he says, "Donnie, if I ever hear you cry again, I will kill you." And I believed him. So I shut down emotionally. For 40 years, I did not cry. He said, I'm 58 today. Six years ago when I was 52, 40 years after that experience with my dad, I'm in a movie, and something during the movie triggered something inside of me, and I wept for half an hour in the movie. And he said, my third wife, this wonderful Christian woman, I have no idea why she loves me, she is helping me heal and take back the 40 years that my father's cruelty took from me. And I wish I could say that that story is the complete exception of my experience out there in the world. It seems every time I turn around, I talk to someone whose life has been collided by the cruelty of another person. And if we think about our lives and we just pause and we say, okay, now, Lord, if you could stand here this morning and if you could give us some instruction, some input, some insight as to what kind of mark do you want us to leave on the planet, we wouldn't have to think for very long. That's, that's an easy, that's kind of a no-brainer. Because we know, many of us who are familiar with the scriptures, that Jesus said, listen, a new commandment I give unto you, that you what? Love one another. Don't power up, don't slam people, don't hold little kids in batter's box. I want you to love one another, even as I have loved you. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 echoes that and says, therefore I want you to be an imitator of God. As much loved children, and I want you to walk in love, just as Christ has loved you, And given himself up for you. So it's kind of this sacrificial kind of love. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Every one of us has heard this passage at a wedding. The end of the passage is, Now abides faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is what? It's love. And then very rarely does 1 Corinthians 14, the first two words, get any play at all. But the first two words of chapter 14 are, Pursue love. That Greek verb pursue is a very strong verb. It is a verb that is used of a wild animal chasing down its prey, grabbing it by the neck, killing it, and then consuming it. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I just explained to you what love is in chapter 13. Now what I want you to do is I want you to hunt this down. And I want you to get it to the ground. I want you to consume it. I want you to metabolize it into your body. And I want love to permeate everything you do. And he says that in 1 Corinthians 13, 16. 16. At the end, he says, I want you to be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, behave like mature people, let 50% of all that you do be done in love. That's not what he says, is it? Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I am guessing that few of us would debate the power of love. Some of us might debate the definition of love. If we stop for a second and we ask ourselves, who are the influencers that kind of, Seep into our minds, into our hearts, and influence how we think about the concept of love. Well, if you're anywhere uh, living in this culture, you would quickly say, Well, the artists of the day, the poets of the day, the musicians of the day, they really influence. How many songs in human history have not been written about love? What, three? <laughs> I mean, almost every single song in history. So I thought it would be interesting, and this is going to be interesting. Uh, to walk, do a little walk down music history, and I'm going to share with you just very short segments of some contemporary songs and some songs that are not quite so contemporary. And I want you to ask yourself as you listen to the lyrics of these songs, what is the notion, the concept of love that this artist is trying to communicate? And we're going to begin with a contemporary artist named Keisha. And so listen to the lyrics of this one. I saw somebody in the back starting to dance. Just calm down back there. Your love, your love is my what? My drug. Let's get high, baby. I, you know what? What is that communicating? That you know, I get around you and I feel this sense of rush. I'm not sure. Some of us would say, "Well, what does Keisha know about love?" Let's go back to someone who really understood what love was about. And every time I hear this song, I don't know what happens. My elbow starts doing this and my fingers start snapping. Cold I will feel a glow just thinking of you in the way you look tonight. Did you find your arm just wanting to do that? I don't know what that was. And the way you it's not Frank never said and the way you look tonight, it is and the way you look tonight. I don't know what that was about. So obviously, you know, Frank's saying, okay. Love looks at something, it admires it, it recognizes that. Next year, this woman will perform at the Super Bowl. See what she's saying about love here. make me feel like a teenage what? Wow, think about that, but not too long, you know. I mean, my goodness. Okay, now some of us will raise net far more with this next artist, and most many of us wore tie-dye shirts the very first time we heard this, and some of us have a history where we might have had something in our fingers when we first heard this song. I catch a grenade. to the same All right, sacrificial love I guess is what, you know He's trying to communicate in that one This is the one that I was thinking about before You remember this? together now. How'd that work out for Sonny and Cher? (laughs) This is a current artist, and this is the most amazing new song about love that I've heard in a long time. Listen closely to these lyrics. This absolutely stuns me. Sometimes I hate every single stupid word you say Sometimes I want to slap you and you The doctrine, according to Pink, that's that's beautiful. Sometimes I hate every single stupid word you say. Sometimes I want to slap you in your whole face. And then she goes on to say, "It and must be true love." <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, we cannot do a little walk down music history. And some of you are saying, "Thank you. This is the last one." Without listening to this woman. I miss her. I would hear the voice of God when she would sing. And I, what a sad I I ending. Mean. You know, most of these songs, they communicate a kind of an infatuation view of love, where you fall in love with a person, you feel emotions. Obviously, that's a very fundamental state of love. I think the scripture communicates pretty clearly that love is a little bit higher. And we would all agree this morning, I think, that love is basically the sharing of your presence and your resources for the good and the growth of another person. When Jesus said you know, a, person ha- a friend has no greater love than this, than if they lay down their life for another. It is recognizing, listen, all that I have, I've been given by God. All of the resources, all of the knowledge, all of the experience, all the connections. And as God leads me, I will bring my presence and my resources to bear on another person's life for their good and their growth. Jesus says, if you want to make the right kind of mark, you've got to show up every day and bring you and what you have and share that in a way. And love is an incredibly powerful thing. When my mother and brother came to live with us four years ago, and both of them is, have passed this last year, uh, the very first thing that happens to my mom, who's you know in her late 80s at that point, as soon as she moves in with us, is she has a surgical emergency. So four years ago on New Year's Eve at 10.30 at night, I'm in a hospital. My wife and I are in a hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan, wondering whether or not my mom's going to make it through surgery. All sorts of things are running through my mind. I always do an end of the year reflection. I'm wondering, is my mom even going to make it? What is it going to mean to have mom and Brian, my brother, who's, uh, who this year turned 50 and uh, died. He has Down syndrome. What is it going to mean for us? What is it going to mean for them? I mean, all these things are running through my mind. And I don't think anybody knows that I am at this hospital and we're in the surgical recovery room, you know, where there's only one name on the screen, that mom's in surgery, everything's half darkened, and my phone buzzes at 10.30. So I open it up and I think, you've got to be kidding me. And I look at the face of the guy who's on my phone. This man could be anywhere in the world doing anything he wants on New Year's Eve. He financially has the means to be able to do that. It's New Year's Eve and he's calling me at 10.30. I walk out in the hallway, and I slide my phone. I said, hello. And in just a handful of words, I was overwhelmed by the power of love. He said, how are you? And I can remember leaning against that hallway wall and looking down, and I said, I don't know. I'm not sure what's going to happen tonight. And I thought, yeah, you know, he he could be anywhere, and he's calling me. I mean, he had the resources of compassion and interest and a phone and my number, and boom, there it was. My brother was my love mentor most of my life. I've had a lot of very interesting leadership mentors that have taught me about strategy and vision casting and hard decision-making and stuff like that. But my brother has taught me what love is by presence because my brother had no future five minutes. If he was with you, he was with you. And he would bring all that he had, the minimal resources that God had invested in him, to bear on your life in that moment. He would show up. And he had a very simple spiritual life. He had a very simple trust in the Lord. And I think he had kind of this very simple intercessory gift because he would pray for me when I traveled. And I'd be ready to leave to catch the, go to the airport. And he'd grab me in the hall and he goes, I want to pray for you, Dan. I'd say, okay. And so he'd put his hand on my shoulder and he'd pray almost the same prayer all the time. Lord, be with Dan. Watch over him. Protect him. Help him to speak your word. Bring him home safe. Amen. That was it. And if God ever did anything through me on the road, it was always because of Brian's prayers. The cool thing was when I would come home, Judy would say, is that you, honey? I'm home. She said, okay, great. Glad you're here. Brian would say, Dan, is that you? And I would say, Brian, I'm home. And I would hear this, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And he would come running down the hallway, and he would engulf me in his arms, and he would say this, I missed you, I missed you, and he'd mean it. And I would feel loved. This is a powerful thing. A while back, I was going to the airport, and Judy and I, my wife, is at our little resource table back there. 40 years, we celebrate this year, uh, I, um, which is pretty cool. But uh, we have a little ritual that we do in the morning before we leave, before I leave on a trip, and she reminds me that I don't go alone, because you never know if you're going to make it back. We want to have that warm touch before we leave. So one morning I was late, and I'm driving to the airport. We didn't have our little ritual, and I get a phone call from my wife just as I'm getting off the freeway to go to the airport, and she said, I'm mad at you. And I said, how can you be mad at a guy like me? <laughs> and she says something like, let me count the ways. I said, no, okay, seriously, why are you mad at me? She said, well, you left without me being able to hug you and remind you that I love you. I said, I know that. She goes, no, shh. You don't go alone. We go together. And I love you. Do you hear me? I said, I hear you. So I hung up the phone. I park, and I'm carrying my little thing into the Grand Rapids Airport and i have this smirk on my face <laughs> you know <like> <laughs> and i'm sure somebody's thinking that guy just lit up in his car what is he doing you know and as i walk in if someone was to say what is up with you why do you have that smirk on your face i would say listen you're not going to want to know no no try me go ahead run it by me i'm a loved man deal with that It's an amazing thing to be loved. It's a powerful thing to be loved. It was so fun to receive the love of Brian, to be loved by my wife, to watch what it is to love by studying Brian. And, you know, you stop and you think about why is love such a powerful thing? I mean, ponder that for a second. Why is love so powerful? And I can answer that question with another question by asking you this. Who woke up today thinking about you? Now let me add another layer to that. Who woke up today thinking about you in a positive way? Who woke up today thinking about you in a positive way and actually took part of their one and only life on this planet and pondered your need and then assessed the resources that God has entrusted to them and was motivated, didn't just think about it, but actually activated their resources to bear on your need. How many, how many people are on that list today? It's a pretty short list, isn't it? When authentic love is expressed, that's what happened. I mean, God saw us. He thought about us. He activated his son to come to the planet. Every time we love somebody, someone comes to mind. We entertain them. We ponder them. How can I serve them? We extend to them. We do that. That's why love is so powerful. This is a picture of Judys and my middle son, Landon on the left, and his best friend, Christian buddy, in high school, named Timmy Burris. When Landon was in college, he was either just 20 or almost 20, I get the 1.30 in the morning phone call. How many of you have received the 1.30 in the morning phone call? Every time the phone rings from then on, you, you shudder. And he is crying so hard... I cannot understand what he's saying. Eventually, he calms down, and he says, Dad, Tim is dead. Timmy's dead, Dad. I said, Tim who? Give me more information. He said, Dad, Timmy Burris is dead. And I thought, oh, man, what happened? He said, Dad, Tim Burris was working at a mission in Oakland, California. And yesterday, he flew up to Portland to see one of his friends. And last night... From my understanding, Dad, it was a beautiful night in Portland, and here are two guys, 19, 20 years old, looking to go out and have some fun together. They want to have a legitimate fun fix. They don't want to destroy. They don't want to get drunk. But they're 19, 20 years old. They're guys looking to do something. So the sun was going down. They stumble across a 14-story abandoned building. And they're thinking, you know, the sunset would look much better from up there than it does from down here. So they hopped the fence, crawled to the top of the building, watch the sun go down, And as they begin to navigate their way back down, Tim slips and falls 13 floors to his death. Just a terrible, needless thing. Mrs. Burris, uh, Tim's mom, when I was on the staff of a church in Chicagoland, she was like a den mother. Her home was Grand Central Station for all of Tim's buddies. And so she was the adopted mother of many guys. Landon was one of her adopted sons, and we love that. It's great to have other people invest in your kids. So Landon goes down for the visitation and the funeral, and Mrs. Burris says, Landon, you're going to stay with us. No, really, I shouldn't know. You're going to stay with us. And Mrs. Burris was a woman of great faith. And Landon goes to help her set up for the visitation. We've all been in those rectangular rooms that, at uh, funeral homes, because they are all they all have the same interior designer. And so you can imagine, you know, Landon is setting up chairs along the side and setting up a table and the picture display, and Tim's casket is open, but it's at the end of the room. And Mrs. Burris and Landon are the only ones there, and Mrs. Burris notices that Landon can't look at Tim. So after everything was set up, Landon tells me, Mrs. Burris comes over to me, Dad, grabs me by the forearm and says... Are you ready to say goodbye to Timmy? And Lana said, I looked at her. I said, I don't know. He said, I don't know how. She said, that's okay. I'll help you. So she puts her arm through mine, Dad, like we're walking down the wedding aisle, and we're beginning to process towards the open casket. We get about halfway there, and I collapse on the ground, and I'm sobbing. He said, Mrs. Burris gets on her hands and knees, slides her hand around my neck, pulls me close to her, kisses me on the cheek, and says, Landon, I miss him too. I'll help you. We can do this together. She gets me up to my feet, walks me to the casket, and coaches me to say goodbye to her son. When he told me that, I thought, how in the world could that woman do that? Is she in complete denial and repressing her feelings and her grief and she'll deal with it later? No, I know Mrs. Burris better than that. Mrs. Burris was a woman of great faith. Mrs. Burris had a discipline that she did almost every single day. She would enter her day and she would pray with open palms and she would say, Lord, everything I have in life, my health, my husband, my family, my home, all that I have, is from your good hand. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And she had done that every day, and so she didn't understand why God had plucked Timmy out of her hand, but she knew where Tim was. And so was she grieving? Yes. Was she immobilized? No. She was able to rally her resources to help my son in that moment. That absolutely stunned me. And I thought, how was she able to do that? And as I thought about that, she had an exemplar. Mrs. Burris had studied Jesus and how Jesus managed his life. And she understood that Jesus was able to rally a heart of love because that was part of his nature every single day in every single encounter. And she was familiar with John chapter 13 where Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world and go to the Father, And the scripture says that he loved his people to the end, to the uttermost, another translation says. I grew up in California in the 60s, and we used to use this phrase, to the max. Like, dude, do you like that car to the max? Do you think she's cute to the max? Jesus loved his followers to the max. And his followers were not often easy to love. I mean, how many times did the apostle Peter say something, and the Lord just goes, Peter, would you just shut up one time? You know? I mean, come on, pal. Think before you open your mouth. James and John have got an anger disorder. Really, they're like mafiosa guys. They're walking through one territory. They won't let them walk. Disciples walk through. And so James and John come up with this idea. Lord, you want us to manage this? We'll just call fire from heaven down. Really, guys? That's the best you got? And Thomas, Thomas, if you ask me why one more time, I'm just going to knock you down. (laughs) You know I mean? The disciples weren't even easy to love, and yet Jesus was able to rally a love. Now, how in the world was Jesus able to love his world? I mean, those who were in opposition, even his closest disciples, how was he able to do that? I think he gives us a clue in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, hey guys, this is in the upper room, he had already washed the disciples' feet, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to go to the garden, sweat blood, he's going to be crucified the next day, raised a couple days later. Jesus says, guys, listen, I know you want to go out and change the world. Here's an idea. I want you to understand kind of the pattern that I have used in order to rally love every single day. Jesus says, just as the Father has what? Loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And so Jesus says, listen, the way that I am able to rally the capacity to love you guys is this. I get away from you. I withdraw to places by myself and I switch, I regularly switch from a giving mode of loving to a receiving mode of loving. And Christ would often withdraw and he would not think about the sucking sound of the world but he would get quiet and he would raise his hands to heaven and he would experience the fresh experience of the love of the Father and that experience then he carried back to his disciples, that's how I'm able to love you. And so he did. He regularly withdrew. We see it. You study the life of Christ. You see it all the time. In Matthew 14, right on the heels of the beheading of John the Baptist, he gets that bad news. He withdraws to a lonely place by himself. The next chapter, he feeds the 5,000, a tremendous miracle, a ministry victory. And he sends everybody away, and he goes to the mountain by himself to pray. And so Jesus had a private worship life to be able to make the mark that we want to make to be able to show up every day and to give the love that we need to give, the Lord would say, withdraw and nurture your own personal private worship life. Because Jesus had go-to places. He had go-to passages. He had go-to songs in the Psalms. If I was going to ask you today, what is your go-to place? Where do you withdraw? And where do you switch from all of the needs out there that you've got to meet to I'm just going to remember right now, core central truth that will renew my spirit and enable me to step back into my world. What is the song right now that's most ministering to you and your heart? What is the last passage of scripture that you read that just rolled over you and you thought, oh man, this was manna for today for me. Jesus had those disciplines. Mrs. Burris had those disciplines. And I think the Lord would encourage us. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, Now listen, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. So become an expert in what it is to receive love from the Lord. Because you will reflect your understanding of Jesus' love for you in your human relationships. So we got to become expert in that. We, we need to regularly nurture our private worship life and be receiving from Him. You know, it's an amazing thing that the common life-changing experience of all of the disciples was that their life was collided by the love of Christ, and it messed with them. It changed them in a good way. Now, why do we need to do that? There is an artist. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of David Wilcox. He's a guy from Asheville, and he has written a song titled A Break in the Cup, and he uses this Uh, The lyrics of this song to communicate the frustration of what it is to pour yourself out for someone else and they just aren't you're it's not enough for them listen to the lyrics of this song he's talking about a love interest but it's a perfect parallel to our walk with God he says I try so hard to please you to be the love that fills you up I try to pour on sweet affection but I think you've got a broken cup because I, you can't believe I love you, I try to tell you that there's no doubt, but as soon as I fill you with all I've got, that little break just threats it run right out. And so he, he creates this picture of what it is to have a cup that, with, that holds love inside of each one of us, and some of us grew up in homes like Don, the guy at the beginning, and his love cup got cracked, it got shattered by the people that were supposed to be most nurturing to him. I mean, his like inner China got crushed, and God is building that back together. And tonight we're going to talk about in our uh, Finding Your Way and Kid Unique workshop, how do we as parents, grandparents, coaches, teachers, how do we build relationships with young people that will help them get to the core of who they are so they can live into the life that God has given them to live. It's going to be a great time. It's worth three hours to figure out how can I be a better mentor, parent, grandparent, you know, support, foster parent. How can I better support the young people? Because it's not easy to grow up in the world that we're in right now. Many of you are familiar with that. He goes on to say, I cannot make you happy. I'm learning love and money never do. I can pour myself out till I'm empty, trying to be just who you'd want me to be. I cannot make you happy, even though our love is true, for there's a break in the cup that holds love inside of you. And then he goes on in the next verse to say, there's a break in the cup that holds love inside of me. And then in the last verse, he said, here's the solution. We cannot trade empty for empty. We must go to where? The waterfall. The waterfall. For there's a break in the cup that holds love. There's a break in the cup that holds love. There's a break in the cup that holds love inside us all. And the place, the waterfall, is obviously withdrawing into the presence of God and receiving the unending, amazing love of God and experiencing that and then bringing that back into our world. Some of our cups are very easy at retaining the love of God. Some of us have a really hard time believing in the love of God. Let me end with just one last story here. This is a picture of Kristen Peterson. A few years back, I got invited to Johns Hopkins University to speak to 120 high school students who had given up a week of their summer vacation to learn how to share their faith in the streets of Baltimore. Amazing group of kids. And so in the morning, different men and women would train them in evangelistic techniques, and then in the afternoon, they'd spin out across the Baltimore, D.C. area, and they would try to create evangelistic conversations. One of their methods was that they would take brooms and they would sweep people's sidewalks and people would come out and say, what are you doing? Well, I just thought I'd serve you today by sweeping your sidewalk. Why are you doing that? Well, we believe that God is able to sweep away our sins. <laughs> you know, and it would open a conversation. You know, students are awesome. And they would some of them would limp back at night and they would have been shut down and humiliated. Other kids would have had amazing experiences where people responded to... Their service and their understanding of, of God. One night I'm talking to Kristen. Kristen was a 17 year old kid, bright eyes, brunette, vibrant faith, all sorts of energy. And I'm trying to convince Kristen before the message that she needs to marry my middle son. Really, I'm just telling her Kristen, you're 17, my son's a little younger than you, but you'd love him, he's sensitive, he's a great athlete. He's smart. He's going to be successful in life. We could just minimize all of the romantic nonsense. You don't need to have your heart broken a bunch of times to find your way. Let's just do the contract now. And so she's having fun. She's dancing with me. But eventually she does this. I can handle my own love life, big guy. I go, okay. It's your loss. want you to know the offer is on the table until I leave tomorrow. You know? She said, Okay. So the next day, my responsibility was to pray for the kids on the afternoon, not to go out with them. So I'm running around the track at Johns Hopkins. It's 94 Baltimore, hot, and I'm sweating, and I get to Kristen's name. And I think, Lord, uh, Kristen's going to go back into her home. And she told me that her mom, two years after the divorce, is, is still upside down. And she had told me the night before that she wished that she uh, was able to have a dad like me who loves his son as much as I do, and I asked her why. And she said, well, two years ago, my father left my mom for a younger body, and he said, oh, we'll still be close. And I've only talked to them twice in the last two years, and both of them were horrible. She said, I just wish my dad loved me like you. And so I'm thinking, you know, here's this kid who's going to go back into her home. Her mom's still upside down two years later from the divorce. She's more mother than her mother right now. What can I do to help her? And as I'm running around, the Holy Spirit whispers me and says, Hey, why don't you give her your bracelet? And I thought, that's an awesome idea. And I was wearing pretty much exactly the same bracelet. It says on it, Right Now, Right Now. It was the theme of a camp that we had done earlier in the summer, and we had created these little bracelets. So I run back to the uh, room, and I shower and wash the bracelet. And that night before the last session, I say, Kristen, find me afterwards. I have a gift for you. She's 17. She does this. A gift? A gift for moi? (laughs) I said, I don't know who moi is, Kristen. I got a gift for you. Find me afterwards. She goes, I'll find you. So she bops up to me afterwards that night, and she says, Gift, please? I said, now, wait a second. Just before I give you this very valuable gift, little quiz. We talked about something last night, didn't we? She said, yes. I said, what did we talk about last night? She said, last night you reminded me that I have value in the eyes of God that God loves me every second of every minute of every day? I said, good. I said, are you going to be able to remember that? She said, I'm going to try. I said, I don't think you're going to be able to. So I I said, stick out your wrist. I want to give you this very precious gift. She rolls her eyes. And I put it on so that the words right now were looking right up at her. And I said, Kristen, when does God love you? And I tapped on the wrist. She said, right now. I said, can we raise the conviction level just a little bit? She said, okay, okay. She says, right now. I say, Kristen, every time you wonder in the next month if God cares for you, when does he love you more than you could possibly understand? And I'm tapping on the bracelet. She said, right now. I say, Kristen, in the next week when some 17-year-old idiot says something mean to you and your fragile self-esteem is lying shattered in the dust, when does God see you as beautiful in his eyes? She said, right now. I said, Kristen, the next year when you question your value, because you don't think that you measure up, when does God remind you that he gave his only son for you? She said, right now. I said, Kristen, when the storm clouds begin to gather on your, the horizon of your life and you wonder whether you have a future and a hope, when does God see that you have an amazing future and hope when you trust in him? She said, right, I let her through like eight of those affirmations, Men and women, she fell onto my chest, sobbing. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those, oh my gosh. I've, I've been with people who cried. It was like her heart cracked down the middle, fell in half, and these deep hurt that she had felt come through her mouth. She is crying so hard. Her leader, Laura, was standing right there beside her, which I was thankful for. It was one of those, I'm going to throw this shirt away when this ministry is done right here. This was a snot, mascara, tear cry. This was a heavyweight cry. And I knew in that moment that God was healing this girl's heart. I was part of a love moment. It was unbelievable. She steps back. She looks at me. And she says, oh, my gosh, you have no idea what just happened inside of me. I said, I don't know. I think I might have a shot at that. She said, thank you for the reminder. I said, Kristen, don't take that bracelet off until you're mature enough in your faith not to question the love of God. The next day I'm getting into the van to go to the airport and she gives me a letter that basically communicates to me that she's never experienced authentic, genuine love from any man. Her whole experience with men in 17 years is that men screw you over. And she thanked me for just basically being a guy who goes to the waterfall and shows up and offers the love of God in a way that makes sense and that's pure. And God has prompted me to stay part of Kristen's life. That was 1997. I helped coach her through the healing relationship with her dad. She has a heart for missions. This is her in Cuba in the upper left-hand corner. She's now in Costa Rica teaching in a school uh, doing missions work. And I got this picture a while back, Kristen and Alberto Sanchez. And she said, Alberto is legit. This guy loves God and loves me. And I said, he better, or I'm on a plane to Costa Rica to do the beatdown on this guy. And then I got this picture. How cool is that, huh? The power of love. Your go-to place, nurturing your own private worship life, is so critical, so important. Let's pray to that end.